5. This is a praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and I shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. They make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open their hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall surely bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Thank you and be seated. So how did we get here? And by here, I mean Psalm 145. Well, seven weeks ago, we gathered together and we looked at Psalm 23. Beautiful Psalm. Curious ending. Not a whole lot of detail there, but a lot to unpack. And so last week, we started unpacking the last verse of Psalm 23, verse 6, by looking at the first seven Hebrew words that David uses to conclude his psalm. David's conclusion was basically this. Undoubtedly, for the whole of my life, I will be hounded by the steadfast loving kindness and the resulting goodness of God. That's the full version of surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And we use that to springboard to Psalm 86 last week, which in and of itself is a messy expansion of that declaration in the first half of Psalm 23, 6. It's messy because it reflects the reality of life. Life is a progression of struggle and victory, of times when we need to be on our face requesting of God, and times when we can boldly stand and make declaration. 
But in the midst of that messy psalm, that messy reflection of life and reality, there is this beautiful structure that centers on verse 10, Psalm 8610, which says, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And that verse finds its fulfillment in this song. Now, the structure of Psalm 145, which we just read, is an alphabetic acrostic. And you might not have caught that, depending on how your Bible is set up. The most famous alphabetic acrostic psalm that we know of is Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, each section of eight verses and each verse within that section begins in Hebrew with the, now it's tough to say this, so I'm just going to use the language we understand, begins in Hebrew with the first letter of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet for verses one through eight. And then every verse, every statement in the next section, the first word of each verse, each statement begins with the second word of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's complicated and it's poetic and it's got great beauty to it. This is the same kind of thing, except not sections of eight, just a single verse at a time. So verse one begins with a word that starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse two with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet and so on throughout the entirety of the chapter. Um, it's beautiful, poetic nature and setup. And I was hopeful that as I looked into that, that it would be... Um, there would be something there that would be supremely interesting to share with you. So I drew up a list of what each word is that's the first word. Now, in the Hebrew, it's not the same first word that we have listed in Scripture. Okay, so verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 don't necessarily always, the first word in Hebrew isn't the first word that you come across in English. So in English, it goes like this. These are the first words that move through the alphabet. I will extol you in verse one, and then the word every in verse two, and then the word great in verse three. And in verse four, it's the word generation. In verse five, it's the word splendor. In verse six, it's and might. In verse seven, it's the memory. In verse eight, it's gracious. In verse nine, it's good. In verse 10, shall praise you. In verse 11, the glory. In verse 12, to make known. Verse 13, your kingdom. Verse 14, upholds. Verse 15, the eyes. Verse 16, you open. So that one fits nicely. Verse 17, righteousness. Verse 18, near. Verse 19, the desire. Verse 20, preserves. And verse 21, the praise. So there you have it. The style of Psalm 145 is, as it states, a song of praise written by David. In the psalm, he includes both first, second, and third person. So there are times when he speaks from firsthand experience using the word I, there are times when he is talking about God, saying, referring to God as you. And there is there are times when he refers to others and brings others into the conversation. And so we move into the third person. 
He does this in order to be able to present how great God is, how wondrous God is, and how unique God is. And as we see, as we're going to see together here in a minute, he sets it up in an interesting way. Now, here's what I'm going to do. This is a little weird. I'm going to move backwards to Psalm 8610. I'm going to use the central verse from Psalm 8610, which is, um, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. I told you that Psalm 145 is like literally the fulfillment of that verse. And so I'm going to use that three parts set from Psalm 8610 as the outline to walk us through Psalm 145. So it's going to be pretty simple. Our three-step outline is going to be, you are great, you do wondrous things, and you alone are God. So let's dive into it. You are great. It's a statement that David makes about God. And it's interesting because the root concept of this word great here um, is not a not necessarily a word of magnitude. It is a word of dimensionality. It's this idea of grown up completely, utterly large, fills all. You are great. In verses 8 and 9, David lays out his reason for saying that God is great. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. In this In these two verses, what David reveals for us is that, number one, God is gracious. Now, when he says gracious, what he's emphasizing is the fact that God is one who shows favor of his own accord, according to his own choice. But God is one who chooses to show favor. And in doing so, he is a gracious God. Number two, he is a God who is compassion full literally full of compassion. An alternate translation in a lot of the uh, different Bibles that we see is the use of the word mercy here. But the idea has a greater depth to it. It has an emotional depth to it with the concept of compassion. Number three, he argues that God is good. Now, this takes us back to last week and is the foundation point for this entire two weeks that we're talking about. The goodness and mercy of God being pursued being hounded by the goodness and mercy of God. And he's using the exact same wordage that he used in Psalm 86 all the way back to Psalm 23, verse 6. It's this same concept of God's goodness, but he uses both aspects of it here. Last week we talked about how there is the intrinsic character of God, which is his goodness. And then there's also the result of that goodness, how it is experienced. Both are called good, but there's two distinct aspects And in these verses, verses eight and nine, he literally calls on both of them. So he's calling on both the character of God in his goodness and the resulting good that we experience as a result of God's goodness. And finally, he hits the last one, and that would be the loving kindness of God. The second thing that we are hounded by, according to Psalm 23, six. This, of course, is that steadfast, sanctifying work of God. His great loving kindness. So when David in verse three says, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Okay, he's undergirding that greatness. He's bringing dimensionality to that greatness by saying 
why God is great. God is great because of his grace, because of his compassion, because of his goodness and because of his loving kindness. Now, there is a connection there. This is an interesting one. The first two concepts, grace and mercy, God being gracious, God being compassion full without God being deciding that he will pour out his favor. Okay, so gracious and without God deciding to pour out compassion. We do not ever get to experience the hounding goodness and loving kindness of God. It would be easy for God to say, I am God and there is no other. And yes, I created them, but they are not me. And what I have and who I am is reserved for me alone. And I will hold it for myself. And had he done that, had he not chosen grace and compassion, then we would not know him. We would not know his goodness. We would not experience his loving kindness. We would not be hounded by those things. So there's a beautiful connection between the grace and compassion of God and the opportunity to know him and experience him in his goodness and his loving kindness. Second, not only are you great, but number two, you do wondrous things. Mentioned this last week, but the root of this, the root concept of this is the idea of something which is a wonder, a wonder to behold, a wonder to consider, something that is extraordinary. So David's description of God's actions, the actions that God will take is that these are extraordinary actions. They are a wonder to behold. And he lays out for us four different sets of actions that work together. Okay. Starting in verse 14, David says, the Lord upholds all who fall and he raises up all who are bowed down. Now, those words uphold and raise up, this is construction or building language. This communicates the idea of to carefully set and brace the foundation and from there to build up, to raise up. This is the first of the wondrous things that God does. I want you to pause and consider what this means. This is not just God physically builds his creation. I think we understand more than in physical building the fact that those who are broken down, those who have fallen, those who are bowed low, need first the foundation attended to with care for it to be braced properly so that rebuilding can continue. Broken lives can be rebuilt. Broken foundations can be fixed and braced with love and care. Number two, the second wondrous thing comes in verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look expectantly to you And you give them their food in due season. You open their hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So this concept now introduces three ideas that work together. The idea of giving food, the idea of opening your hand, and the idea of satisfying. These combine for nourishment language. 
So we started with construction and building language to describe the wonder of God's works. David now moves into nourishment language. And the idea here is to feed from the hand, not just to throw food over there and you take care of it yourself, but to literally feed from the hand, to bring intimacy to the process, to feed from the hand so as to satiate with plenty, not just enough so you survive, but to give you full satisfaction, full plenty, and cause, this is beautiful language, and cause the whole of your creation to be pleased. This is what God does. Now, sadly, there are those that spit in the face of the intimate, open-handed provision of God. There are those who turn their back. There are those because they have no understanding of the beauty of what's being set before them that say, I want nothing to do with that. And you know what? Absent the work of God and the grace of Christ in our life, we would make that same foolish decision. But the nourishment image reminds us a God of intimacy, a God of plenty, a God of fulfilled desires and full pleasure. Number three, the third wondrous thing that David outlines that God does. Verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. Again, in this, in this example, three action verbs to fulfill, to hear, and to save. These comprise what we know as redemption language. This is the idea of making them acceptable and listening for their cry for help and then delivering them from bondage. To make them acceptable. To listen to their cry for help. And when heard, to deliver them from bondage. Amen, God. Thank you for that action. It is wondrous to behold. Fourth, and finally, David draws our attention to another wondrous thing that God does. And this is found in verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. It's an interesting one because it's the first time we come across a contrast. In fact, if you look carefully, almost every other verse, every other statement in this song has a continuation, an and, a semicolon. Continue the thought, build on the thought, embellish the thought, make the thought even greater. This is the first time we come across a contrast. First time we come across the word but. And it's pretty substantial. So in this example of wondrous things, God is both preserving and destroying. This is shepherding language. Because the idea here is to watch carefully over those who love him. Contrast. But. To not hesitate to exterminate the wicked. To watch carefully over those who love him. 
but to not hesitate to exterminate the wicked. The contrasting statement is a reminder. It's a reminder that there is a severity to mercy. There's a way in which mercy is severe because the protection of life includes the destruction of that which would threaten that life, be it physical or spiritual. Number one, you are great. Number two, you do wondrous things. And number three, you alone are God. The root concept here in the statement, you alone are God, is the idea of separation. You are God and there is no other. There is none like you. You are separate. It brings in the idea of holiness, altogether different and set apart. And David argues, makes the case for God's uniqueness, his separation, ultimately his grand holiness on three levels, three themes. Theme number one, which you can catch a couple times in this passage, but most eloquently described in verse 18. I'm sorry, not verse 18. Yes, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. God is unique in the concept of nearness. Because God is entirely different than the ancient gods whose role was to sit back and be served by their followers or to insert themselves for their own selfish purposes into what was going on in the lives of their followers. Uniquely, the Lord approaches, comes close to those who call upon him in faithfulness and truth. The Old Testament is explicitly rife with the concept that God comes near, God comes down, God comes to be with man. And there he makes his dwelling among them, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple, the nearness of God. David's second argument that God is God alone, unique, separated, holy, is found in verse 17, which says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. God is God alone because of righteousness. Righteousness, that which defines God in his rightness, in his justness, and can emanate only from him and never from broken mankind. Nearness separates God from the pretender gods. Righteousness separates God from those who are the pretender humans who would elevate themselves to be God. Righteousness is a loaded concept in David's writing in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 31, I didn't write this down, so this is coming from memory. Apologies here if this goes sideways. In Psalm 31, David makes the statement. Um, yes, David makes a statement in Psalm 31. Um, Have mercy upon me according to your righteousness. Now, at the time that Martin Luther was being prepared to take a stand, he was teaching through both the Psalms and Romans. 
And as he was grappling with the concepts of what it meant to be saved, changed by God, as laid down in Romans, it was Psalms that informed his perspective. Because prior to that notion, bringing up the subject of the righteousness of God meant that you're doomed. You're doomed because God is righteous and you are not. Because God is right and just and holy and you are not. And the righteousness of God meant bad news for man. But there in Psalm 31, David says, have mercy upon me according to your righteousness. And it turned Luther's concept of how to understand the righteousness of God upside down. And God used that to open his eyes to a true understanding of the gospel and not just a continuation of what the church headquartered in Rome had continued to teach. And a reformation was born. So when we talk about the righteousness of God as properly understood as far back as David's interpretation of salvation through righteousness, we're talking about groundbreaking reality and what makes God unique. Third, you alone are God because of verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It is, in fact, the everlasting kingship of God that sets God apart and argues for the uniqueness of God alone. Claimed by many gods, pretender gods, and many men who would set themselves up to be God, it is only the revelation of Yahweh, the self-existent one, that can claim this reality of eternal kingship. Now, All of this is great. In fact, it's based on verse three saying great is the Lord greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. It really is great. It's great truth. It's God honoring. It's challenging. But I would be wrong. I would be wrong if I did not also remind you of a few things. In the subject of God doing wondrous things, using the construction language to uphold and raise up. I would be wrong if I did not remind you that the foundation stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and that Jesus is that stone and that being rooted in him, we are being built up into a spiritual house. I would be wrong if I did not remind you that the nourishment language of giving and opening your hands and satisfying, if I did not remind you of him who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. As it relates to the redemption language, to fulfill, to hear, to save, I would be, I would be wrong if I did not remind you of him who said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. When it comes to the shepherding language, the wondrous things about God, preserving and destroying, I would be wrong if I did not remind you of him who said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and they follow me and I lay down my life for my sheep. When it comes to what makes God unique, you are God alone and the nearness of God. I would be wrong if I did not remind you that Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us when it comes to the righteousness of God that makes him unique. I would be wrong if I did not remind you that for our sake, 
God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when it comes to everlasting kingship, it would be wrong of me to not remind you of him who said, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, you are great. And as we are reminded, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, is every bit as great because he is every bit as God. He alone is God. Forgive us, Father, for not extolling you, for not blessing your name, for not praising your name, for not lifting up your name from one generation to the next and declaring your mighty acts. Father, you hound us with your goodness and your mercy. That which flows from the very essence of who you are in goodness and that which causes us to be sanctified in your loving kindness. You are great and greatly to be praised. May we be people of praise. May we be people who can do nothing other than magnify, reflect on, and talk about the greatness of God. Teach us how to extol, how to praise, how to bless your name in a way that is appropriate with who you are. You alone are God and appropriate with what you have done, your wondrous and extraordinary works. Thank you for the blessing of being able to worship together. Cause us to grow in worship in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we praise, in the way that we bless. In Christ's name, amen.